Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. On March 5th, 1946, at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill stood and gave what was, if not one of the most important speeches of his entire career, certainly one of the most important speeches of his time in opposition. It became known as the Sinews of Peace speech, sometimes known as the Iron Curtain speech, and was seen as one of the defining moments in the emergence of what would become the Cold War. But within that speech, Churchill also talked about the relationship between America and Britain. And here he said, What I have called the fraternal association of English-speaking peoples. This means a special relationship between the British Commonwealth and Empire and the United States. And that term, the special relationship, has come to typify the relationship between the United States of America and the United Kingdom. But to what extent does the special relationship actually exist? What does it mean and how did it come about? And that's what we're going to be discussing today on American History 2. Hello and welcome to American History 2. This is episode 20. I'm Dr. Mark McClay. Happy New Year to all of our listeners and a happy new year to my colleague who I'm always joined by, Dr. Malcolm Craig. And a happy new year to you and our listeners as well, Mark. Yes, and I think uh, this year, at least the turn of this year has started especially well for you, Malcolm. You secured your first book deal, so we're going to be seeing you in print shortly. Yes, and yes, indeed. Uh, probably the book will not be out until the very end of this year or early 2017. Let the anticipation build. Do, oh, do, yes. Do you want to tell our listeners what the book's going to be on, roughly? Oh, it's about uh, America, Britain, and the Pakistani nuclear weapons program, uh, 1974 to 1980. Ah, well, I'm sure. And it, 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 top of the New York Times bestseller list, no doubt, with a gripping subject like that. Well, I think it's either you or Bill O'Reilly going head to head. We'll see who he decides to kill this year. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, just on the on the podcast itself, as I promised over Christmas and New Year, we now have a Facebook page. Uh, uh, check out at www.facebook.com slash American History 2 of course 2 spelled T-O-O as I keep on having to say and I'm starting to wish we'd named the podcast something else um, and also given that this is an election year um, people tend to be really interested in what's going on in America and the presidential election and election years and we have plans in the works to do some maybe election specials along the way um, so keep an eye out for that also, just quickly, just to put a couple of plugs out there for, especially if we've got any postgraduate students in the United Kingdom listening, we've got a couple of conferences coming up that our friends are heavily involved in. First of all, the Scottish Association for the Study of America is having its uh, annual conference on the 5th of March in the University of Stirling, and if you want to give a paper at that, uh, get your proposals in by the 31st of January. And also, there's a conference taking place at the Rothermere Interest Institute, I'm speaking really well today, in, uh, at the University of Oxford on Daniel Patrick Moynihan's America um, uh, with some really good people behind that uh, and that's taking place on the 29th of April and Moynihan's daughter is going to be there um, but if you want to do a paper you've got to get that in for the 29th of February and can I, can I just add with the SASA conference uh, one of our guests uh, Kat Bateson who talked so excellently about Irish Americans and the, the Civil War is a uh, important figure behind SASA, does all their social media stuff, uh, and also uh, one of our guests for this year, uh, Patrick Andalich, or we know him as Paddy, uh, mm-hmm. who's going to be coming on on hopefully one of our election specials, uh, mm-hmm. is one of the co-organisers of the Moynihan Conference. Yep, and so, moving on then, new year and new format, Malcolm, so I have an opening question for you, I'm going to begin soliciting these from listeners rather than coming up with them ourselves. So, history-related opening question, 
if you had to have dinner with three people, either dead or alive, in American history, who would you choose and why? Um, first off, Frederick Douglass. Okay. I think one of the, the you know, escaped slave, abolitionist, uh, great orator and thinker. And I would, I would love to sit down and have a discussion with, with Douglas, who was in the UK you know, for a, a large chunk of his life, giving yeah. hundreds and hundreds of speeches and platform presentations uh, about abolitionism and about the, the horrors of slavery. So I think Douglas would be a fascinating uh, figure. Uh, let's move over to you. Who would be your first one? Uh, I would quite like to have Eleanor Roosevelt. At dinner, uh, mainly like because I was finding it hard to choose between all the all the like Teddy, Franklin, and Eleanor. But Eleanor knew both of Teddy and Franklin mm. very well, so not only would Eleanor be fascinating herself, but she could tell me. Yep. Um, and and but, a fascinating figure in her own right. Yeah, that's what I was saying. She'd be yeah. fascinating herself. Yeah, a great kind of liberal hero of the first half of the twentieth century in America. Sarah Josephine Baker. Dr. Sarah Josephine (laughs) Baker. In the early part of the 20th century, she did more for infant health and bringing down the death rate of children uh, in New York City and all over the United States than anyone else. Her, she should be more well known. Her activities were genuinely remarkable. She reduced uh, the, here's one thing that she did. Infant blindness was a problem. She reduced infant blindness in New York City down from 300 cases uh, a year down to three. It's not a bad record. She also, in her first three years of being in charge of uh, infant health care or child's, child's health care in New York City, she reduced the death rate uh, of children by 40%. Yeah, you're probably right. She probably should be on a wee bit better. Um, but now you're going to make any choice. I think seem less. You've captured the moral high ground there. Like, where Sorry. do you go after that? Um, my next one would probably be Jackie Robinson. Um, I've always been particularly interested, find him quite a fascinating character. Obviously, the first uh, African American to be allowed to play Major League Baseball, but also, like in my research, I've come across his correspondence with a lot of people because he was a member of the Republican Party, and I researched the Republican Party. and uh, And Jackie Robinson throughout the nineteen sixties is, is very interesting. It's sure something I'd like to to cover at some point in a future podcast. But yeah, so Robinson. Uh, so your final choice. Who good, are you going good with? Sure. Uh, Virgil Ivan Gus Grissom. Wait, wait, wait. Can I stop you right there? Have you gone three choices and you've still not said Jimmy Carter? You'd realise you don't get a fourth. Yep, I do. Virgil, Virgil Gus Grissom. Okay, well, uh, what's, what's so important about him? One of, the, one of the Mercury 7 astronauts, America's first people in space. And uh, Grissom was dogged by controversy uh, because it said when his space capsule landed, he panicked and blew open the door and thereby sank the space capsule. It was a bit of a disgrace for the American space programme. It's actually probably the case that it was a me- it was a mechanical malfunction, but Grissom was dogged by, by these accusations, and then he uh, died in a horrific fire uh, at one of the early Apollo missions. Uh, very interesting figure. There's the, you know, the famous story about how the editor of Time uh, magazine, it was either Time or Life, I can't remember which mm. one, uh, you know, said to him, We're not, we can't have you know, uh, an astronaut called Gus, <laughs> what's your what's your middle name? And he goes Ivan. Really? I remember this in the middle of the Cold War, and uh, and they go okay, yeah, you can be called Gus. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a great wee anecdote. I suppose my final one. I'm going to cheat. Uh, I do apologise in breaking my own rules. It's my game, so I'll play it that way. Um, I would have LBJ and Robert Kennedy there just so I could sit for the entire night watching them snipe at each other. You, you said you couldn't have four. It's three. Yeah, Pick one no, of them. No. Pick one. Well, LBJ. LBJ. Well, right, well, actually, he'd probably spend most of the night bitching at Robert Kennedy anyway, so they probably don't have to be there together. But anyway, the special relationship. I suppose this is an apt moment to be discussing it, since we're being slowly drip-fed conversations that uh, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair had in the late 1990s. Um, I, I should warn listeners when they go looking for those that half of them are jokes, unfortunately, mm. because uh, I really wanted to believe a couple of them. But anyway, so before we delve into the various interactions between the US and the UK, especially in the kind of post-World War II era, I want to ask you straight up, Malcolm, in your opinion, has there been a special relationship between the US and the UK? And, you know, if there is, if there was, you know, can you delve into what that special relationship is? Bold opening. 
I would say that during the Cold War, because we're going to be looking at the post-1945 period, during the Cold War, many, many nations claimed to have a special relationship in air quotes with the United States, Pakistan and Israel being two examples of this. And yes, in those cases, we can say there was a degree of specialness. But the nation that is constantly claimed to have the special relationship above all others is, of course, the UK. Uh, the trouble is the so-called special relationship has been far rockier and more turbulent than Winston Churchill's 1946 speech might suggest. And I'd argue that the US-UK relationship is very distinctive. It has elements that set it apart from other international relationships and it is long-lasting. Uh, however, I find that the special relationship is, is, is a convenient aphorism. Uh, that serves to obfuscate the complexity, turbulence, and the very dynamic nature of US-UK relations since 1945. So what is distinctive about it? You said that word, what is distinctive? I think there are, there are two particular strands that are always held up. One is the intelligence-sharing relationship, and the other is the nuclear technology-sharing relationship. Okay. And they are quite distinctive, but they are not entirely unique. Okay, we'll get, we'll get into this more when we're discussing specific instances. But before we kind of get into the, the post-World War Two uh, relationship between the US and the UK, it's maybe best just to set some context, obviously, for where the US and the UK were before that. I mean, obviously, the US is forged by throwing off the UK as its colonial master um, in the wars of independence. Um, and it, But after that happens, you quickly see a rise of like pro-British and anti-British camps. You know, you've got the sort of... Hamiltonian school of thought who said, you know, the Federalists who wanted to be really close to Britain, wanted to have close commercial ties, whereas you have Jefferson's Democratic Republicans who look to France um, more as their sort of, their kindred spirits. Um, and then obviously the, the US and UK fight another war. They have the War of 1812. And then of course, you know, when we get to the mid-century period, we have the division between North and South during the American Civil War and the appeals by both sides to Britain uh, for support obviously the confederacy is not successful in its appeal to britain uh, mm. to come to its aid uh, as an ally very close to being Clo close to being uh amanda foreman's hugely substantial book uh on that covers that subject mm -hmm. uh, quite quite well but i think it's the case that in the 19th century it's because britain is the predominant global power it is the superpower yeah but it has the empire on which the sun never sets until we get to the 20th century and then the sun starts going down quite rapidly. And I think there's there's a good point that we could say to generalise 19th century belongs to Britain, 20th mm -hmm. century belongs to the United States. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think as well in terms of this relationship, the one of, you know, where Britain had been the dominant um, actor in the US, the secondary power, I think we maybe see a sort of crossover point in World War I. Um, I don't know if you would agree with that analysis, you know, because you have... The World War One sees America basically. There's debated how much America comes in to help win the war, but it very much comes out of it as one of these great powers. And the interwar period has Britain and the US probably as the two greatest powers. Well, I mean, if you go by kind of uh, the great World War One historian Hugh Strawn's thesis that the the United States essentially funded World War One. For the Allies, yes, yes, Britain you know did contribute a lot, but the, the majority of the funding came from the United States. And I think, I mean, I think you're quite correct. There's, there's a turning point where, although Britain, to use a general term, is unwilling to recognise the fact that it is an imperial decline, there is a point there where that is where the decline of the empire can truly be seen to start gathering pace. Yeah, and I mean, it's quite interesting because you sort of have this rivalry between Britain and America in the, in, you know, the 20s and 30s in a sense because they are the main powers at this point. And, I mean, Churchill, who you used as an example at the start, who you know, is the man who coins the special relationship and does everything he can sort of after World War II to forge that special relationship. In the 20s and 30s, like, he was quite anti-American at points, especially during the 20s. I mean, at one point he was hoping to get moved, I think it was, to the Foreign Office, and his wife says to him, yeah, darling, I think you're a wee bit too anti-American for them. But of course, you know, Churchill's mother was American, so he did have a, con a connection there. yeah. Uh, he has a complex relationship with, with Churchill. Has a complex relationship with most things. A complex character. Yeah, yes. and I mean, in the thirties, he sort of changes his mind towards the end of it, and then obviously, in the as World War Two begins in earnest, obviously him and Franklin Roosevelt begin 
what is often seen as the sort of founding stone, you know, the, the the cornerstone of of the special relationship. Um, and World War Two, which uh, you know, AGP Taylor, the famous historian, once called the the War of British Succession. Um, which which I which I thought was a brilliant name, but obviously America comes out of the Second World War as along with the Soviet Union the superpower, but definitely the Western superpower, so sort of the successor to Britain in that regard. Well, if I can just can say, America comes out of the the war as a military and economic, and in many ways social and cultural superpower. The Soviet Union doesn't. The Soviet Union comes out of it as a military superpower. And remains that way for the rest of the Cold War. And I think there is only really one superpower during the Cold War, and it's the United States. That's a good. That's, that's a good point to make. Um, so I mean, Malcolm, at the end of the at the end of World War Two, uh, I mean, you mentioned in a previous podcast that one of the foremost images sort of burned into your mind in American history is is that of Roosevelt. Churchill and Stalin sitting together at Yalta. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how much do these two figures of Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill loom over the the, the story of the so-called special relationship? Well, I mean, I think to a, to a massive extent, uh, I think Churchill especially, and I think you know Yalta is one of those. You, I mean, you, the photograph you refer to, there's many of them from Yalta, but the one where they're all sitting in a row, there's you know Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt all sitting smiling at that point. Roosevelt is a very, very ill man. And one of the reasons the Cold War comes about is because of the tension between Stalin, Churchill and Roosevelt. There's all these vague agreements made at at Yalta and other conferences because Roosevelt thinks that once we'll get the war over and done with and then I can deal with Stalin. I know him. We'll be able to negotiate. You know, we get on. And Churchill is going, don't, don't trust Stalin. You know, they, obviously Churchill and Stalin come to the percentages agreement over uh, Eastern Europe and all that kind of thing. However, that's one of the problems because when Roosevelt dies, he leaves a presidency with no clear guidelines about how to resolve the issues that are still outstanding from Yalta. Yeah, I mean, and fam- famously Truman never even knew there was an of the Manhattan Project, which is no, atomic bomb. But I mean, I think more more importantly yeah. than that, there was so many vague agreements that that Truman had no idea how to handle. There was no real groundwork for the post-war world. Mm-hmm. But I mean, with Roosevelt, the way Churchill does his very best to like sort of single-handedly keep this idea of a special relationship going, doesn't he? I mean, um, he makes various speeches in the US uh, when he's in opposition and when you know, when he's back as Prime Minister in the mid-1950s. But also, I mean, interestingly, um, that special relationship speech, the sign news of peace speech you mentioned in, mm. the, in you know, the opening vignette, I mean, that's a pro- That's not just Churchill going off on a whim and going, I'm going to make this lovely speech to the Americans when he's, at, when he's in Missouri. That's pre-approved and pros- possibly directed as well by the administrations of Truman in America and Atlee in Britain, isn't it? And I've seen an argument that says that, that whole the special relationship and the Iron Curtain was designed to strengthen uh, the hand of the Truman administration and wanted to ramp up the Cold War in terms of containment. I think the 1946 is, I think, one of the critical years of the 20th century. I think you're, you're right there in that containment hasn't yet become a thing. The Cold War isn't really on yet, but it is emerging. And Churchill very clearly states, look, there, this division has taken place in Europe and therefore there is now a division in the world and we're on the side of good. Those guys over there are the bad guys. All that kind of thing. But 46 is absolutely critical because it's a moment where there is the chance that the Cold War will not emerge. Mm-hmm. Nothing in history is inevitable. You know, well, it depends on which side you, you know, of the debate you fall on. But 1946 is a year where there's great hope that there will be... One of the things is people genuinely believe that the way to avoid wars like World War One and World War Two is world government. Is National government cease to exist and global world government is the thing. And you have these negotiations over, for example, international control of the atomic secret, in air quotes, that come to nothing. On the American side, you have the Baruch plan. The Soviet side, you have the Gromyko plan. But Britain falls into the middle of all of this. And I think this is a point where we see this, the special relationship as more complicated than just the idea of this overarching, oh, everything's lovely kind of thing, where the United States cuts off atomic cooperation with the UK. Now, part of this is because of various spy scandals, Igor Gozhenko and various other things that demonstrate the Soviets have been spying on 
uh, on the Manhattan Project, and therefore Congress especially, uh, decides, right, well, we don't want anyone getting hold of the atomic secret, we want to hold on to it as an American thing, and they cut off uh, atomic relationships with everybody. Yeah, and I mean, the <clears throat> since we've mentioned the Cold War as well, and I'm going to ask you, can I, before we get into, I'm sure we'll go through a few specific events in the, during the Cold War and others, but to me, growing up in an era of the Iraq War, um, you know, I often think, when I think the word special relationship, I see Tony Blair and George W. Bush standing there side by side or walking um, whatever it was at Camp David or something. And how much is the special relationship defined by situations of war? Now, I know that's a vague question. You can choose to take it in whatever way you want. But I mean, that's certainly, that seems to me the preeminent focus of any relationship. I, I think that's a very tricky one to give a coherent answer to because you're dealing with many different contexts, personalities and issues. So the notion of war as a factor in the relationship is a complex one. Certainly World War II is an example of a strong alliance, although one where the UK is definitely the junior partner. The Korean War uh, from 1950 to 53 is an example of the UK government showing willingness to follow the US into a war under the auspices of the United Nations and contribute to it, partially in the hope that it will regain influence with the United States. The Suez Crisis of 1956 is something I think we should probably discuss in more detail. And, the, and Vietnam is the prime example of a British government refusing to accede to the desires of an American president regarding a major war in Asia. And again, it's something we may want to discuss in more detail, the relationship between Harold Wilson and Lyndon B. Johnson mm -hmm. over, the, over the Vietnam War. But... I think saying that war is a unifying factor can sometimes oversimplify the yep. situation. And we can talk about other contexts, including the Falklands War, for example. Okay, well, let, let's let's jump straight into Suez. Churchill, having proclaimed the, the special relationship in 1946, Suez Crisis, which takes place a decade later, is where you get the people writing the obituaries of the, the, of the special relationship, the first of many times that people are going to pronounce the special relationship as having died. So... This this case where Britain, France and Israel have conjured up uh, a reason, um, a sort of false cause in which to invade Egypt um, for numerous reasons that we probably don't have time to go into just now. And the United States, looking at it under President Ayer, Eisenhower says, no, um, we're not going to support you in this. And if you don't back out, um, we'll, you, they'll suffer economically. Absolutely, um, yeah. Has, has the Suez relationship is, or sorry, the Suez crisis is it understood correctly, or is there more going on here? Is is it a, is it a moment where you go, yes, the special relationship is pretty much dead there? No, absolutely not, because the Suez crisis uh, has been reevaluated uh, in recent years uh, over the past decade or so as new evidence comes out, and the Suez crisis simply just isn't as important as it pre it's previously been seen as this catastrophic break in the relationship this defining moment, and it's simply not true. Suez fed into an ongoing series of events and debates and discussions about the role of America and Britain in the Middle East. Britain had, since the 19th century, been the colonial protector, in air quotes, of the Middle East. It had been the overarching power in the Middle East. And there had been an ongoing kind of debate post-war about, well... Does America now assume that role? What is Britain's role? And there had been disputes between Britain and America over various issues in the Middle East. Uh, Burami Oasis uh, is one of them. Uh, Post-Suez, you have discussions over Lebanon and Jordan and all these kind of things. So Suez isn't as singular and important as it might be seen, you know, it might have previously been seen. Yeah, I mean, is it not true? I mean, just a couple of things about it. The first of all, is Eisenhower not very ill during the Suez crisis? He then comes to regret his decision that there's written somewhere that he maybe felt he should have done something else. But the most important thing to come out of it is actually that Britain pulls itself closer to America. And it's actually France that gets really annoyed at America and goes off to find well, Germany as an ally, basically. Well, I mean, what happened to give a very brief rundown of that? Eisenhower is recovering from heart attacks. Mm -hmm. He's actually quite ill. Uh, Dulles, John Foster Dulles, the American Secretary of State, has been diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. And Anthony Eden, the British Prime Minister, uh, is suffering from a botched... Uh, I think it was a pancreas operation mm -hmm. uh, back in 53, 54 that leaves him in constant pain. He's actually on uh, stimulants a lot of the time because he keeps blacking out because of stress. 
many of the major figures in the Suez crisis are very, very ill and possibly not really assessing the situation clearly. But you're you're quite right. One, Eden gets uh, has to you know, resigns the the premiership uh, effectively because of Suez, and Harold Macmillan. Uh, becomes becomes Prime Minister and Macmillan takes very strong steps to try and renew the relationship with the United States. In France, uh, what the events of 56 say to the French leadership is that, well, look, we can't really rely on the United States. And one thing it does is really pushes France to develop its own nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Not something that the US was crazy about. <laughs> but if I'm also going to like bring nuclear weapons back into it is the fact that Britain tested its first atomic bomb in 1952. And then very shortly after that, America tested the first hydrogen bomb, thermonuclear mm. weapon. And over the ni- during the 1950s, there is an increasing closeness between Britain and America over atomic issues. The, you've, got, you've got a couple of... It's a mutual defence agreement or that's, something. Yeah, that's, and, you've got, and you've got Polaris missiles then well, arrive on the Clyde. And well, that's, that, I was going to come up to that. The, the mutual defence agreement comes about in 1958 when essentially the McMahon Act of 1946 uh, is essentially abrogated in the case of the United Kingdom. Now, there were changes happened to it in 1954 as well once Britain had proved itself capable of attaining independent nuclear capability. But 1958 is a moment where... The Macmillan government and the Eisenhower administration go, like, look, we are going to work very closely together on this nuclear thing. Yeah. Additionally, even though Suez is seen as a crisis and there's a decline in the relationship regarding the Middle East in the 1950s, from 1945 onwards, in fact, during World War II, the intelligence relationship is absolutely critical between the United States and the United Kingdom. In fact, Britain is a hugely important component of American intelligence capability, certainly up to 1952, because Britain still has an empire, even though it's declining. It has signals intelligence, so listening into other people's radio communications. It has signals intelligence stations all around the world. America doesn't have that. It also has a a genuine signals intelligence agency, uh, what becomes GCHQ. So are you saying in an extent that America needed Britain to be its eyes and ears in the, in the yeah, way the world? In the early Cold War, American intelligence organisations rely... The CIA only comes to existence in 1947. They rely on Britain for signals intelligence in the way until the American National Security Agency, the NSA, which we are so familiar with now because of all the recent revelations about you know, phone tapping and email monitoring. The NSA is only created in 1952, and that's when America gets a genuine signals intelligence agency. But there's still a hugely close cooperation between GCHQ and the NSA throughout the Cold War and beyond. The two organisations are inextricably linked, and that never stops. No matter what happens with the relationship, there is always this very, very close intelligence relationship, especially in terms of signals intelligence. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we jump forward then into the swinging 60s. Um, which uh, which produces probably one of the rockiest relationships between the leaders of the two the two nations, at least the two states, um, in terms of Lyndon Johnson and Harold Wilson. Um, I mean, I know we've already kind of touched on this in our previous podcast in Vietnam, but it's maybe worth just chatting about. I mean, how close, given the fact that Britain and Wilson refuses to send any troops to Vietnam, um, how close does that come to? to irreparably damaging the relationship between the US and the UK. I mean, you famous, You said, you know, that Lyndon Johnson famously asked for a platoon of bagpipers. Yes. Um, such was his frustration that Wilson was just not giving him anything. I think we need to place it in, in the context of the relationships that had gone before. Macmillan has a good relationship with Eisenhower, and then when JFK becomes president, Harold Macmillan has a good relationship with him. Harold Macmillan certainly views his relationship with JFK as almost an uncle and a favoured nephew. He will give the new young president tutelage because he is an elder statesman. He's wise in the ways of the world and all all these kind of things. But that's not to say there isn't crisis and complication there. And particular in that is the Skybolt crisis. Britain has decided to set aside its own plans for developing an independent airborne nuclear missiles as a deterrent. And it said, well, we'll buy the American Skybolt system, which is under development at this time. Skybolt doesn't work. It's probably never going to work. And Kennedy ends up cancelling it. Macmillan goes nuts. Well, British cabinet I, I, goes nuts. I, I, I was, I was going to say, I can't imagine Harold Macmillan going nuts. I maybe, know. I maybe can <laughs> overemphasise it. But uh, what this leads to is, on one hand, part of the American idea is they do not want 
independent national nuclear forces is one of is one of the issues. And part of the things to do with Skybolt and then they decide to give or sell at very, very cheap rates the nuclear deal of the century, Polaris submarine launched missiles to Britain. But part of this is trying to integrate Britain's nuclear forces into a NATO nuclear force that isn't under national command. So and this NATO nuclear force will involve, hopefully, France, West Germany. Belgium, the Netherlands, all that kind of So part of it is an attempt to try and integrate Britain's independent nuclear forces into this NATO nuclear force. That is a rocky moment in the relationship, the Skybolt crisis. And it's one of the contributing factors, not the only one. We have other things like the Profumo affair, the yeah, sex scandal, uh, that brings down the Macmillan government. And we have the brief premiership of Sir Alec Douglas Hume. And or then Sir Alec Douglas who? <laughs> and then we have in 64 Harold Wilson of the Labour Party becomes Premier and I think this leads into the complex relationship that we get between LBJ and Harold Wilson neither of whom like each other no no, they no. really don't like each other Johnson I think famously described Wilson as that little creep that, that's, that, that sounds Johnson-esque it is that, very Johnson-esque and I don't think Wilson didn't really trust uh, Johnson Wilson's issue was I think Wilson is probably the cleverest person, certainly in the 20th century, to be Prime Minister. He was an incredibly intelligent man. The trouble is, you know, Wilson many times liked the idea of Wilson being a great statesman, you know, Wilson being uh, mm-hmm. on the world stage. The trouble is, Britain isn't, I mean, we talked about the empire declining. The empire is practically gone by this point. There's been the year of Africa. The humiliating devaluation of the pound takes place in 67, I think. There's multiple devaluations of the pound in the the 1960s. And also, you know, Britain is in some ways fighting to hold on to the bits of empire that remain. Uh, And it is fighting in the mid-1960s a colonial war to support uh, the Malaysians uh, the former kind of federated Malay states, uh, in fighting an anti-communist insurgency. And this is one of the reasons, not the only reason, Britain's an economic basket case at this point. It's already fighting a, a ground war in Asia. When when Johnson is asking Wilson's government to give aid to Vietnam... For a jolly in the jungle. For a jolly in the jungle. British forces are already fighting in the jungle. They are fighting alongside the Malaysians against Indonesia in what's called the Confrontasi. And it's the biggest deployment of British troops after, in the 20th century after World War II, up to that point. It's about 40,000 British personnel serving in Malaysia, fighting the Indonesians in the jungles of Malaysia. So Britain is already fighting a land war in Asia, a war that it can't really afford. And there's already a snowball effect of we need to cut down our defence expenditure because, as you point out, the pound is being devalued. The British economy is a basket case by this point. It's not really doing very well. And it eventually results in the decisions in 1967, 68. British forces are going to be withdrawn from east of Suez, the east of Suez decision. That's it. Britain's involvement in Asia is now done and dusted. Yeah. And I think, and obviously, so as the Vietnam War progresses and this Wilson and Johnson feud, feud goes on, you get another round of people saying, and especially relationships dead. And it was actually in 1968, the Thomas Hughes, who was part of the state, the US State Department's Intelligence and Research Bureau, he writes, perhaps the best evidence that the special relationship is still alive is the fact that its detractors feel obliged to re-announce its death every few months. Yes. And um, which seems quite an apt comment. And I mean, I, I don't know whether we want to... S- you might want to touch on the 1970s. I mean, the in the 1970s, Britain kind of gets this label of the sick man of Europe. Um, and some administrations in America are basically saying, you know, Britain isn't actually worth that much anymore. I mean, for example, you know, the, the, Wall, the Wall Street Journal lamented, goodbye, Great Britain. It was nice knowing you. Um, and in October 74, Henry Kissinger, uh, sage, advised President Ford, you know, you have to operate on the assumption that Britain is through. Um, so does the 1970s, and perhaps from there onward, is this an even, a further relegation to an even more junior partner um, than it had been prior to that? Well, I mean, there's been an ongoing turn towards Europe, I think, is the, the critical thing. Because in 73, Britain becomes a member of the European Economic Community, the forerunner of today's European Union. The Heath government takes Britain into Europe. Now, 
They're trying for so long. They've been trying long. for so long to yeah. do this. And the, one of the reasons they eventually get in is Charles de Gaulle is no longer in charge in France because de Gaulle has consistently gone through the 60s. No. Yeah. He doesn't want Britain to join the European Economic Community, primarily because he actually quite accurately defines Britain as a stalking horse for American interests yeah. in Europe. This is just going to be a means of America trying to influence. And US has always wanted the UK to be part, part of, of Europe, yeah. hasn't it? No. And certainly under the Kennedy administration and the, the Johnson administration, there is a great enthusiasm for getting Britain involved in Europe. When Edward Heath becomes Prime Minister, and he's Prime Minister up to early 74, he takes Britain into Europe, and he's much, much less of an Atlanticist than his predecessor. He is, I mean, he looks to Europe. Which is quite funny, because the Edward Heath not take part in the America's Cup while he was a he sailor. Was, he was a great, great yachtsman, <laughs> yeah, a yachtsman, very enthusiastic sorry. yachtsman. Yeah. Uh, and so he takes Britain into Europe, and there's all sorts of controversies happen in the mid early to mid-1970s between America and Britain. I talked about the intelligence relationship. being That's a constant, running all the way through. Yes, there are ups and downs, but the intelligence relationship is absolutely critical. Find Hen- out more about that in a Palgrave Macmillan book coming to you by the end of this year. <laughs> well, Henry Kissinger, it's interesting you brought him up, because in 1973, because of various things that are going on, Kissinger decides in a moment of peak to cut the intelligence relationship he says, he says to the, the, the Heath government, well, if you don't do as we say, we're going to cut off all the intelligence relationship. And he, and he does it. The thing is, this actually, you think, oh, that shows the weakening of the special relationship. Actually, it doesn't. It shows the strength of the intelligence relationship because the intelligence agencies completely ignore what Kissinger says. NSA and GCHQ carry on cooperating. CIA and SIS carry on cooperating. On the operational level, there's no diminution of the relationship. But on the state-to-state, kind of high-level, kind of a Kissinger goes, I am cutting off... Because he knows it's so important. He knows it's one of the threads of the of the, of the special relationship. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, if we kind of move, move it along then, we've done this quick tour of uh, the post-World War II uh, relationship here. Can I just add one other thing that's critical in the 1970s is the IMF crisis of 1976. Is there a way you can talk about it that'll make it really interesting? Okay, so Britain's economy has got worse and worse and worse and worse, and it's a complete disaster area by this point. And Britain has to go cap in hand to the International Monetary Fund and say, please bail us out, we're broke, the country is about to fall over. And so the IMF people come to come to London and they have to kind of do all sorts of things. Like, so rather than prioritising employment, they must prioritise reducing inflation, various economic things. Uh the Callaghan government doesn't want to agree to all of any of this this stuff, but they eventually have to. Bob Simon, the American Treasury Secretary, visits Britain as a private citizen while these stalled negotiations are taking place, and suddenly everything gets resolved. He's like, "Oh, I'm just here as a private citizen." Yeah, very good. Uh, so you know, Simon essentially resolves these things, but it leads to a certain sense of in parts of the Labour Party, especially the Labour Party backbenches, of an increasing level of anti-Americanism. Because America is seen as being the driving force behind the IMF crisis and also the stipulations that lead to mass unemployment. We've got to prioritise bringing inflation down. Who cares about unemployment? And there's a lot of resentment over the IMF crisis that builds up and builds up until the winter of discontent in 1979, which is one of the most defining moments. Which... Partly because of that, sees the arrival on the British stage of Margaret Thatcher in 1979, closely followed by Ronald Reagan at the beginning of 1981, arriving as US President. And I think Thatcher and Reagan are, you know, they're up there with your Churchill and Roosevelt, um, or your Blair and Bush, or even Blair and Clinton. He appears a couple of times in terms of how we think about uh, the images of the special relationship. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I don't think the, we need to add too much on their personal relationship in terms of they were quite close personally, although they did have some rocky moments, which mm-hmm. we'll touch on. But obviously, the most one of the most significant things that happened um, during the Thatcher-Reagan relationship is when the United Kingdom goes to war um, over the Falklands. Um, it goes to war with Argentina. And this actually, this creates a lot of tension in America, doesn't it? I mean... Caspar Weinberger, um, you know, he offers a whole co- covert support 
uh, to the United Kingdom, but it's met with a lot of pushback by well, the Americans who didn't want the, the you know the US to help the UK in this regard, and it maybe feeds into as well this sort of US antipathy to empire and Falklands being a one of the last examples of the British Empire. Well, I think there's the the famous cover of News the American Newsweek magazine. Uh, while the Falklands crisis is taking place that shows the British task force steaming to the Falklands and the, the headline on the cover page is The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> and remember, this is just at the time the second Star Wars film has come out. So it's The Empire Strikes Back. And yeah, there is a Is this Britain trying to recapture post-imperial greatness and all that kind of thing? But one other thing I think the Falklands Islands crisis does very well is illustrate that it's not just about relationships between individuals. It's the complexities between within governments because you have as you pointed out American Secretary of Defence Casper Weinberger is very pro-British he says look I will give you all the support I can give you up to including if one of your carriers gets sunk I'll give you an aircraft carrier allegedly uh, he can like, gives as much support as he can to British on the other hand you have Secretary of State Al Haig who's trying to use diplomacy between you know Britain and Argentina and the United States to try and resolve the, the situation peacefully. Reagan's caught in the middle of this. You have the uh, American uh, ambassador to the United Nations, Jean Kirkpatrick, who creates all sorts of kerfuffles surrounding this, surrounding voting in the United Nations. Uh, so it's uh, the complexity within the American government. It's only after a certain point where essentially the Weinberger faction becomes the dominant faction and America throws its weight behind Britain's efforts to retake the Falklands. Yeah, and and also as well, the the other thing that happens during the Reagan-Thatcher relationship in one of the documents that's most been re- released uh, and commented on recently was when uh, Ronald Reagan uh, invades, uh, well, you know, instructs the army to invade Grenada. Yes. And uh, Thatcher's none too happy with him at this point. You you could say that. She shouts at him down the phone. Yeah. Loudly. Very yeah. loudly. Yeah, it's like it's, it's quite funny because you hear like Ronald Reagan, you know, this one of the one of the great icons of the American presidency in the twentieth century sounding like a naughty schoolboy. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's, some, there's some great transcripts of it where where Thatcher is absolutely putting the boots to Reagan over various issues. I mean this happens quite a lot. And he's just on the other end of the phone going, Yes, Margaret. Yes, Margaret. Yes, Margaret. <laughs> but, you know, there is, a, I mean, despite all of this, they have agree- disagreements over a huge number of things. Reagan's Star Wars programme, Strategic Defence Initiative. Thatcher isn't that keen on that because she thinks it reduces the value of nuclear deterrence and she's incredibly pro-nuclear. But there is still a warm personal relationship between the two leaders and that does contribute to the resolution of certain, you know, critical issues in the 19- 1980s. Mm-hmm. Thatcher is the one who claimed, you know, she discovered Gorbachev you know, before he becomes premier, this is a man so I can, can do business with. I can do business with him. Yeah. Says, to, says to Reagan, look, you need to talk. This guy's going to be the next leader. You need to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then kind of Thatcher just get, gets a bit annoyed that she's effectively sidelined yeah. post Gorbachev coming to power. It becomes, you know, the Mikhail and Ronnie show. Yeah. And Margaret is kind of left out in the cold slightly. Ah, well, she got to find out what it was like to be Winston Churchill, I suppose. Mm. Um, so, and as we, we kind of start to bring this tour to an end, one of the last, one of the, another time when the end of the special relationship was proclaimed was when the Cold War finishes. Yes, and people are like, and commentators are like, well, America doesn't really need Britain as you know a sort of an ally it can rely on as much as it did in the in the polarized Cold War world when it was very much you know you you're either with us or against us type thing. But the Gulf War happens straight away. Britain's involved in the first Gulf War and the the special relationship. And I mean, does it continue in terms of the two distinctive uh, parts that you've outlined in terms of its intelligence relationship and the nuclear part? No, oh, yes. I mean, absolutely. The two remain kind of like vital components of the relationship. I mean, I think there's a, an argument to be made that, and this, you know, scholars such as Vaudrey Jeffries Jones, for example, you know, discuss the question of is the intelligence relationship a distinctly Cold War phenomenon? Now, I think the evidence that's come out recently about cooperation between the NSA and GCHQ indicates that intelligence cooperation is perhaps not a distinctly Cold War phenomenon. It continues to persist uh, in the late 20th and into the 21st century. Whether we'll see a decline in that over the next decade or so, you know, who knows? There are changes and there are kind of like seismic shifts because of technological change, because of political change, take place in the, you know, the intelligence uh, relationship. In the nuclear relationship... Britain still relies on America for 
it's uh, it's nuclear missiles. The warheads are made in Britain. They're a British product. But the missiles are American. They're maintained in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, Kings Bay, Georgia. So the missiles themselves are an American product yep. and require American support in order to maintain them. And I th- one of the last things that I want to comment on in terms of leaders' relationships is I-, I think what must be the only relationship that's really forged out of a mutual appreciation of each other's domestic policy. I can't think of another example you might be able to fill me in is that between Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. You know, Blair was a great admirer um, of Bl- of Clinton's third way politics. Mm. Uh, you know, like finding a middle way between conservatism and liberalism, sitting yourself there and riding that to election victory time after time. And, um, and they, I mean, they do very similar things about yep. you know deregulation of financial markets, yep. you know, increasing license for uh, you know. You know, trading and all these kind of things. So yeah, I mean, I mean, absolutely. And also, I mean, they're a different generation of politician. They've grown up not in the, the pre World War Two world or the world of the nineteen fifties, but they've you know they've grown up with the sixties and the seventies and the counterculture and changes in music and popular culture and all that kind of thing. And they you know they have a relationship that's sometimes founded in in the appreciation of the quite different cultural environment they grew up in. Yeah, and I think that leads me on to the next point that I wanted to discuss. I mean. Obviously, we've talked about all these relationships between leaders over really serious matters of war and peace. But how much is, if you're talking about a special relationship, do you think there exists one in terms of culture? Um, In terms of, you know, I mean, not even more broad than that. Like when Winston Churchill was trying to forge the whole special relationship, um, he had just written, you know, the history of the English-speaking peoples, um, which he pretty much misses out everyone bar the Brits and the Americans. He hardly talks about Australians and all this yep. stuff. It's all about talking about this relationship between uh, the UK and the US as English-speaking peoples. I mean, how much how much truth is in there, is there in that? Like, how, how much do you think the fact that we have a shared language, and obviously Spanish is now hugely on the rise in America, mm-hmm. so it's maybe less so than it used to be, but how important do you think that has been even to the... You know the the intelligence relationship and everything because it's communication. You can't underestimate it. Can on a, you? on a diplomatic level, I think it's just easier to have a relationship with someone who speaks the same language as you than it is to have someone who speaks a different language. I think that's that's axiomatic, and there are shared cultural traditions and historical legacies and all that kind of thing. But just having yeah that English speaking thing. It's easier to have a relationship. And I think your point about the, the cultural relationship in America has, in many ways, become the dominant cultural superpower. But mm-hmm. British cultural output is hugely important. In the 60s, you have the British invasion mm-hmm. in America where it's British bands led by like the likes of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and everything who become the chart-dominating uh, you know, musical acts of the, of the decade. Mm-hmm. So it, it flows both ways with you know music, with cinema. With yeah, arts. I mean, like we we are both brought up in by Hollywood, in a sense. I mean, like Hollywood's yeah. reach over here, and you 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 grow up with certain tropes that Hollywood generally kind of voice upon you in a sense, um, which you then when you grow up you start to challenge me a bit more. So I mean, I think it's it's quite important to emphasise that the cultural component. Cinema, music, literature is of critical importance as well, as well as the relationships between individual states people, whether it's Reagan and Thatcher or Wilson and Johnson or Eisenhower and Eden. Do you want to know, before you finish there, I want to have one last word. The weirdest thing I find about the special relationship is seeing US television coverage of our monarchy. That might be the strangest part about it. Now, I was over in the US, I think it was when uh, William and Kate were getting married, and it was wall-to-wall coverage, um, all pomp and circumstance. And given that, you know, 250 years ago, whatever, they they, they, they fought a war to get rid of that. It's just, mm. it's, uh, it's quite funny how it's developed that way. But sorry, I'll let you get yeah, back no, to rounding I mean, up. Mike, and if, I think there, there are important relationships between the United States and the United Kingdom, and I think there will continue to be for obvious and non-obvious reasons. The special relationship, as I said at the start, is an easy way to simplify what is a very complex set of interlocking relationships 
and ideas. And it's not just as simple as Britain has a special relationship with America. It's simply not as easy as that. There's a whole constellation of different things that leads to Britain having an, an, a relationship with America, America having a relationship with Britain. Sometimes it is special. Sometimes stuff happens that does not happen between any other allies of either country. And sometimes stuff happens against the interests of both countries or against the interests of one country. Sometimes there's arguments. You know, it's like an extended family where you know, you'll have an argument about what Auntie Agatha said about our Tom at Jeff's wedding. That kind of thing. Eisenhower called the Suez crisis a family spat. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, as in, in many ways, it's like that. I, I sometimes think that certain aspects of the, uh, the special relationship are less of a, a special relationship and at times more of a marriage of convenience. That sometimes it's just, that's the way it needs to be. Yeah. Rather than it being because of any special. But there is specialness there in certain parts of it. Okay. And I mean, just to give the, the, the most recent example of the challenge was when Barack Obama became president and commentators everywhere were pointing out, oh, his dad's, you know, came from a former colony of Great mm. Britain. He's going to turn towards the Pacific. It's the end of the special relationship again. Um, but what, as Thomas Hughes said in 1968, perhaps the best evidence that it's still alive is the fact that the detractors feel obliged to renounce its death every single few months. Although Obama did comment in 2011, uh, America has uh, no closer friend than Nicolas Sarkozy and the French people. He also said that, I believe, to Mexico, um, to yep, Britain. Yes. Amer America's so good at, like, it's, it's almost like they don't realise they're being recorded. There are multiple special relationships between America and various countries, but I think that's inevitable of being a super, the inevitable case of being a superpower. Yeah. And maybe that's uh, the note we'll end on for, for, for this podcast. So uh, we will be back next month uh, when we'll be discussing, I believe, the presidency of Herbert Hoover uh, with uh, Alistair Duthie. And uh, until then, we shall see you next month. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. I'm